I was with uh, Brian Forster, and we were seeing a lot of the main sites, Sacsayhuaman, Ojante Tambo, Machu Picchu, but he took us to this one site. It was this cave in the middle of nowhere, way off the beaten path. He said, I'm gonna take you guys to see something that your average tourist will never see. And uh, he said, way up there is the cave. And uh, as you get higher up, you kind of started to see some Inca ruin. But I was absolutely blown away when I went inside this cave. Inside was precision megalithic architecture. On one side, you had what looked like, it could have been like an altar or it could have looked like a console. It was very futuristic. Precision cuts, trapezoidal. And then on the other side of this cave, it was like this perfect rectangle cut out with lasers and inside was a 3d door that looked like it went straight into the mountain but it was you know it was a faux door again the fact that this was in a high mountainous cave in the middle of nowhere was mind-blowing but then what happened next there was kind of like an uh an incan shaman guy there that was helping out our tour guide and this guy is waving incense and beating on a drum and he tells everybody to uh you know just basically meditate and take it all in and i'm thinking oh man there's no way i'm taking all this in uh yeah yeah uh, so everybody's just kind of closing their eyes as this guy beats on his drum and invites in what who knows what right well there was this guy in the group who was you know everybody thought he was the smartest guy in the whole group he was a, a proud atheist and he literally did have a genius iq you could tell but in the middle of this incantation thing this guy starts um screaming and yelling and freaking out and you know everybody comes to his rescue and they're basically what's going on and when this guy settles down he goes on to share how when that was happening he saw this puma come through that portal and enter him to where yeah. it literally scared the life out of him Hey guys, thanks for joining us. I've got a special guest with us today from Megalithic Marvels. That is Derek Olson. Hey, Derek. Hey, Kevin. So glad to be with you guys. Uh, really looking forward to what we're going to talk about here. Yeah, no. And thank you again for just taking time to, to connect. It's a really big deal. Uh, had fun with uh, Nate from Blurry Creatures the other day. He, we we talked a little bit about you in our episode there, and he says you're 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 a real one. You know, you're 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 a real guy. So he appreciates you. <laughs> I was so. gonna say, I hope he was saying nice things. Yeah, he only had nice things to say about his guest. And so when I heard you on the podcast, it really struck a chord in my heart because you know I was a fourth grader uh, at in in school, and my what I asked my parents for for Christmas was. Uh, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible because <laughs> my, wow. my my fourth grader teacher had it and I wanted it because in the back of the book, back of that Bible has all the archaeological digs and all the okay. uh, you know the mount the what well, I think you've, I'm sure you've been there but the uh, 
um, the temple in the side of the mountain that's on Indiana Jones movie, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I, you know, I was a kindergartner that could spell archaeology, you know, I, that was about, I wasn't great wow. at spelling, but like I knew I spelled archaeologist and I was like, man, I just, I want to discover these things and, and how cool. And so when you got on there and started sharing about not only the, the history of our earth and, and its peoples and, and what the things we've built that we know, but an even deeper revelation, you know, and, and not to give any spoilers, but it might've been even you or someone uh, recently on one of the episodes had said that the Sphinx, that there's secondary stuff built on top of it. Like it was, it was something beforehand and then they right. built on top. I was like, no way. It, it just blew my mind. And I would love to know more about what this guy has to say. I would love to have my kids hear more about this history of our earth, yeah. you know, more of a blurry approach to our history. <laughs> right. So tell, tell me a little bit about what started you um, on this journey really of, of megalithic marvels. What is that for anyone that doesn't have a reference? Yeah. I mean, my journey, it sounds like as a kid, I was probably kind of like you, Kevin. Um, I was fascinated originally by just the subject of dinosaurs, that there could be these giant, you know, creatures that once lived and now we only see their bones. So as a kid, like a lot of kids, especially boys, I was just enamored by dinosaurs. I remember getting this book. This is going to date me way back in the eighties called, uh, I think it was called the great dinosaur mystery. And it was just kind of this big picture book, but it actually had some um, non-mainstream information in there. If I can, if, if that makes any sense, actually, my mom found this book recently in her garage and gave it to me. Oh, so man. it's kind of like uh, you know, an heirloom from my childhood. So this, this book, and I don't even know who wrote it. I'll have to check, but it had this photograph that was taken in 1977 from a, a Japanese fishing vessel that was uh, fishing off the coast of New Zealand. And it, in its nets, it had pulled up this massive uh, decaying body of a, a reptile that looked just mm -hmm. like a plesiosaurus. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as a kid, my mind was blown because to me, this meant dinosaurs might've been alive much more recently than we've been told. And um, I did some further research over the years, and many believe this was the carcass of a plesiosaur. If you do an internet search, you might find this. Um, they even made a, a stamp um, in New Zealand. It was a state stamp for a while. I believe it showed this plesiosaur uh, that was pulled up by this boat. So that really, as a kid, was huge to me because... It was the first time that I can remember where it was like, I learned something that was beyond the mainstream, mm -hmm. you know, while there's more to dinosaurs than I've been led to believe, um, could there still be dinosaurs alive in the vast ocean waters today? I remember thinking that, uh, as a kid, so that's kind of where it started. And then as I got older, uh, I grew up in church, you know, began to read the Bible, and uh, was always intrigued by the mention of giants in Genesis 6 and places like Numbers 13. And my favorite Bible story was always David and Goliath. Like, mm -hmm. I love, like, as a kid, I visualized it like a, a Lord of the Rings-esque movie, just epic battle scene. And I remember asking my, my parents, my Sunday school teachers, you know, about Goliath and, and this giant and never really got any answers beyond these were just big people. Uh, you know, and that was it. Right. Right. Uh, so I remained heavily interested in, in those kind of subjects throughout my life. Um, 
And then I think it was around 2008, I visited Israel for the first time and uh, did a quick trip in Egypt. And man, my passion for ancient history really began to increase. Um, looking back, even though I was I was still mostly blind, blinded by the mainstream narrative then, cracks began to emerge. Uh, one example is we were we were visiting Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall, one of the most iconic spots there in Jerusalem. Yeah. And that's that's an amazing spot to visit if you've been there. But I remember we I think we paid extra to take this little side tour behind the Wailing Wall. Now the Wailing Wall itself up close, it's I mean, when you're standing there looking at it, it's it's very large and um imposing. But you go behind it and you go layers down below it. Hmm. It's I think it's called the Kotel Tunnels. There you see the most original foundational stones of this original temple. Really? And these things are on the scale of Egypt. They're on the scale of, of Baalbek. We're talking 100 ton mortarless stones. Wow. And I remember back then thinking, how in the heck did they move these? Right. You know, these are so massive. So even back then, my wheels were spinning. Um, so that's one example that I guess that's kind of how it all got started um, when I think about it. You kept mentioning the 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 narrative, right? And 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 just curious because there really is a, a narrative that you know us Americans are given that that we just believe, and not to get like conspiracy, uh, but even the, the concept of every culture in the world has a history of dragons, except for us here in the states, we have a history of dinosaurs, you know. And and it's just thinking through some of those components is how come every other cultures have these histories of, of giants and, you know, flying serpents and dragons, but you come to America's and it's all very science, very, very naturalized, very uh, explained away. Even when you look at some of the uh, megalithic uh, structures, I think in Texas, you have those, the giant wall that that's uh, submerged, you know, and you also have the giant mounds out this way. And, you know, we're planning a trip out later this uh, year to Mesa Verde, you know, and, oh, and cool. see what I can find out there, you know, but um, you kept mentioning this, this idea of, of the narrative. So what, what are some of the things that kind of kept a wool or, or a fleece over your eyes until you started to see it for yourself? Great question. Yeah. What were some of the things that kept the fleece over my eyes? Well, um, yeah, I think it was just the influence Influence, influencers in my life who had the power to, you know, teach me about history. I think of um, obviously what I learned in middle school, what I was learning in high school, my Sunday school teachers I referenced, I'm sure they meant the best, Absolutely, but yeah. they were regurgitating what they had been told. Right. right. Um, I remember going to college my freshman year, this is at a, a you know, private Christian school. And I remember actually being excited about, man, this history class looks awesome. I heard good stuff about this teacher. And I'll never forget on day one, um, he comes out, our history teacher, and he gives us our uh, textbooks. And here at this very Christian private school, you know, you're paying extra to go to. Yeah. The textbook they were using 
started right off with evolution. And he was kind of like, ah, you know, we'll just kind of skip that part. But the fact that that was what they were using mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is really sickening to yeah. consider. Um, and that was back in 98 okay. um, that we were using secular textbooks in Christian universities to teach history. Right. And we wonder why, you know, the world has become so confused and, and people have been uh, so blind. The good news is, I think that if we're open-minded and we're searching, uh, boy, the truth will smack us. So I was, well, I think one of your questions for me was, what yeah. was one of your top aha moments, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so I remained interested in history and archaeology and all that, all that cool stuff. I remember it was about 2012. I was... Uh, doing an internet image search. It was, I think it was my day off and I was, I was searching for ancient ruins and I stumbled upon seeing for the first time, a photograph of the megalithic mortalist architecture at Sacsayhuaman in Peru. Okay. And if you haven't, um, if you don't know, what I'm talking about Google Sacsayhuaman, Peru. Mm-hmm. And um, so immediately I'm thinking, whoa, this is, unlike anything I've ever seen when it comes to ancient ruins immediately um, I'm thinking this is special. This is superior. Like how have I never seen this? That was the first question that formulated in my mind. And how did it take me getting to the year 2012 to find this? Right. 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 And so I began to research more and realized, okay, this is a massive ancient fortress in Peru. Then I began to find there are more of them all over Peru. And the more I began to research about megaliths, it was like the more I began to learn about a, a supposed conspiracy wow. to hide true history. Yeah. And I, I, um, found, I found the the reference you're looking for. Don't ask me how I figured out how to spell Soxekawan. <laughs> uh, but, you know, hey, thank God for Google. But right. Wow. that I mean, that's something when you look at it. Yeah. This site features... Uh, stones that are up to, I believe, 125 plus tons. Mm-hmm. They go 12 feet underground. This thing, what, what we see left of it is literally just really the base foundation. I mean, what it must have looked like when it was first made would, would blow our minds. Wow. Um, but these stones are so massive, yet so precision, where you can't fit a human hair through those um, those joints. It's mortarless. And, and they're not all like, they're not all on right angles either like there's there, there's even curved ones and they're and they're perfectly meshed in with each other right yeah so i was thinking how was this never in our in our textbooks like why weren't right. we talking about these amazing walls that are far superior than um what i've since learned what the inca made but again when you start to read it um from any mainstream publication, they'll say, well, the Inca made this. And I can go into in a little bit about why that, that can't be the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, that's kind of, that was my aha moment. Like, okay, what are these walls? And then as I researched more, I began to learn about this cover up of history. And then the subject of the Nephilim kept popping up. Hmm. And um, I came across a book by L.A. Marzulli, great researcher called on the trail of the Nephilim. It was actually a series he did. I think back starting in like 2010. Okay. So again, by the time I was catching the series, it was like 2012 or 13. And this book did an amazing job 
of kind of connecting these dots of megaliths, hidden history, and the Nephilim. And I was like, okay, I'm starting to get this and realize there was a really concerted effort uh, by mainstream, even religions, to hide the Genesis 6 narrative, the Nephilim. And the implications of that on faith even um, was just crazy to think about. So, um, and then when you, when you kind of start looking at Darwinism and what's been taught about that, that's the, obviously the prevailing paradigm today, right? Right. Uh, It's become the status quo for mainstream archaeology. So any evidence that conflicts with the Darwinian paradigm, it's shut down. It's forbidden really. You're right. Uh, so there seems to be this deliberate ob- obfuscation to hide anything that doesn't fit into that standard theory, basically that Native Americans crossed the Bering Strait and settled here. And so we see this repeated effort, you know, in a historical record to clear all references of anything that's pre-Indian, mm-hmm. Caucasian culture. Um, and so what they've done is they've created this these laws called NAGPRA. NAGPRA. It stands for National... Oh, Native American Graves Repatriation Act. Hmm. So basically, in a nutshell, anything that's discovered today in, in, in the United States, for example, that's ancient, that might be pre-Native American Indian, mm-hmm. that might have Caucasian features, um, they basically say, nope, it's Native American, and it's theirs, and it must be repatriated immediately, reburied on their, their tribal lands. So basically, it's illegal to even touch it. Okay. Um, even if that's it's not a, native, is what you're saying. Correct, correct. And that's why even when there's discoveries made today, which there are, it's almost nobody knows about it. It just vanishes. Um, so those are the so, kind of so things. Does that, it yeah. actually get, does it actually, I mean, do you know, d- does this stuff actually then get reburied on native land and and do the native chiefs of those areas know what's going on or does it just disappear? Yeah. Well, one example would be um, we're about to release a new article on megalithicmarvels.com about the Kennewick command. Um, yeah. I think, I think you're in Washington state. I'm in Washington. Yeah. He's state just too. down the, down the, down the way from us. Oh, you're Washingtonian too. Yeah. Awesome. So Kennewick man, I mean, this is one of the biggest discoveries in the modern era. And again, uh, if you just go off the mainstream bullet points, this was just an old, um, nothing to see here, mm-hmm. Native American. Um, well, the scientists themselves, when they discovered th- this vehemently with their research, said this is not Native American by any means. Mm. This is um, way before that. There's even evidence that was hidden that this thing had an elongated skull. Oh, wow. Okay, so all pictures of the skull have been scrubbed. Um, so we're going to release some photos of this coming up soon. It's an amazing wow. article um, where we really take a deep dive with uh, this this possible cover up here. Um, but so there was this huge legal battle over Kennewick Man, and in the end, the government said, "Yep, it's it's the Native Americans um, of this tribe. I can't remember their names." And that thing was taken to their their land and buried. Mm. And uh, even though the scientists themselves, most of the evidence said something to the the contrary. So sure, sure. 
Man, that's that's it's fascinating though when you're when you're looking through this history and, and even as you're talking about First Nation, you know, Indigenous people, Native American stuff, um, and their history, I've I've realized that the oral tradition of their history doesn't always match what has been rewritten in the museums as their actual history. And my wife and I took our kids on a road trip to Mount Rushmore uh, in 2020, and we stopped off at the Museum of the Rockies there in Montana. And I mean, we're walking through, we're seeing dinosaur bones, and I'm just like, these things are just straight dragons, man. Like, like I, I don't know, like, I feel like, I feel like, I don't know if God made dinosaurs, <laughs> maybe, maybe angels played with their DNA too. I don't know what's going on. But like, it, it, when you're looking at these things in the face, you're like, oh, these yeah, these are terrifying. But with all that to say, and we got to a section where we got to see all the indigenous people um, the indigenous people's, uh, relics and, and their oral tradition, but written down. And you find out that a lot of their, their written down history gets modified, uh, from, from its original storyline to be more, uh, acceptable. And, and so even, I believe, you know, reading some of the stories from chief Joseph Riverwind, um, I think he has a book called, uh, um, anyways, I'll come back to that one once I remember the name of the book, but look him up and, and he, sh he shares more of the, to the true of the, uh, oral tradition and history of, of, of native indigenous people, you know, part of like, you think of when they say, when they raise their hand, you know, from a distance, it's like, how many fingers are you working with? You know, are, who, who are we dealing wow. with a giant here? You know, or are we dealing with someone with five yeah. fingers or six fingers? And, uh, you're like, wait a minute, that all of a sudden makes a whole lot more sense, uh, in that context. And so it's, it's interesting. Um, just this revelation that, that you're having of these aha pieces, like, how is this possible? And I guess along this journey, since it was 2012, you said it really kind of questioned a lot of those components that, you know, even good intentioned, uh, Sunday school teachers and, and, and whatnot, as good intention they had. And I, I know I, Hey, I'm, I'm one too. I've taught things that later on, I'm like, Hey guys, <laughs> I've learned now, and now I'm now I'm teaching a little bit differently. It, it didn't didn't take Jesus Christ off the cross, you know. He's right, still at the right. center of of revelation of our of our faith. But this makes more sense now. Here, how did your faith come into relationship with God in the Word? Have there been times where maybe it's been strengthened or shaken through this journey of of discovery and questioning the things that you were taught? Yeah, great question. You know, I've kind of had an interesting journey. I was. Uh, I was brought up in a very loving Christian family. Um, uh, and I was heavily involved in church, uh, in my local church, you know, from as long as I can remember, I think since I got out of diapers. Um, so we were always uh, serving in the church. And my dad was, you know, worship leader, elder, mom was Sunday school or kids teacher, all the good stuff. Um, and so I, you know, so it was one of those things where I was brought up in the church. I heard it all. Um, I do remember when I was eight years old, we had a Sunday night service and uh, our pastor gave an invitation for those to accept Christ and, and pray the sinner's prayer. And I did that and I got a little Bible where I, I wrote that down. So that's kind of like my, um, although I probably accepted Christ many times in my life, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, that was the one time that I really remember uh, as young as I can remember. However, over the years, um, you know, when I look back, I, I began to probably develop some unhealthy um, things in my Christian walk as far as 
being so busy doing things for God versus mm. being still and just communing with God. Yeah. Um, I've actually spent many years in full-time ministry as well and wow. traveling the country and doing a lot of good things. I hope. Yeah. Um, but looking back, man, very busy and not, not always anchored in communing with God and just abiding in him. Right. And it's really been the last several years where I, um, I feel like God's finally slapping me hard enough where I'm learning to slow down and, and, um, get in the word and, uh, again, abide in him, I think is the key word. And then let ministry flow out of that. Right. Um, because I do, I believe we need to be doing great things for God. He, he gave us one shot at this and we need to make an impact. We need to use our gifts, our skills, our talents. We need to make an epic impact as long as that's coming out of that place of, um, relationship with him, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So that's kind of how I'd answer the first part of that. And then, yeah, man, there's been times through this where my faith has definitely been strengthened. Um, one example I would think of is just how I grew up thinking about the flood narrative and Noah. Yeah. And, you know, as a kid, this is, wow, God is wiping out the whole earth. Um, because of sin, yes, sin is evil and it's destructive. Right. Um, but as I as I've really grown in my faith, as I've learned, um, I would say one area my faith has been strengthened is as I've come to an understanding that um, the watchers, the fallen ones, descended upon Mount Hermon, mm-hmm. bred with earth women. And created this progeny called the Nephilim, who were these basically these hybrid giants. Yeah. Goliath would be the most famous in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and these were this, this was Satan's chess move to, to basically breed out the son of God from coming. Right. Right. Or, or that the son of God would have to come from his seed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So as you learn what was really going on, as, as L.A. Marzulli would say in this cosmic chess match, mm-hmm. you know, you've got God creating humans perfect in his image, just the way he wanted us. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Satan corrupting what God had originally made in his image. And it was kind of like it, but not fully, right? We're talking hybrids. Yeah. And when you, so when I began to really grasp that this is all happening right before the flood narrative. Yeah. And then when you start to study who Noah was and look at the Hebrew there, uh, the Bible says Noah was perfect in his generations. And that basically means genetic. When you look up that Hebrew word, it's the same word. It's, I can't remember the, what the word is called right now, but it's the same word used to describe the unblemished sacrifices God wanted in the Old Testament. Wow. Genetic. So coming to a realization that Noah and his family were likely the only purely genetic humans left on earth. Wow. Now you see that this flood story is actually a love story. Yeah. God is saving humanity that he made in his image and he's wiping out and resetting. Um, and then Again, we see numbers I, I referenced. Um, you know, you've got the children of Israel coming in to take their inheritance in the promised land. Well, here there's the giants again. Numbers 13 references the, the sons of Anak, the giants. 
Uh, that's why they look like grasshoppers in their sight. Right. Um, so Genesis 6 makes it clear that the giants were on the earth in those days of the flood, but also afterwards, somehow they came back. I kind of right. likely believe it was just a second incursion. We yeah. know that they did it once. They probably did it again. And these things are there to keep the children of Israel out. And this is why God is saying, wipe out these inhabitants. Right. Um, because I believe they were hybrids. And there was all kinds of different Nephilim tribes um, that have different names and have different characteristics. Um, but to me, that was where my faith was really strengthened to answer your question is, okay, so God is not a psychotic mass murderer. He is a God of love and order, and this is an illegal creation. Yeah. And really, he's saving humanity by... Um, by doing these acts, um, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And and it really, uh, as I was studying me and my wife, when we were on this road trip, one of the things that we were reading along that journey was uh, the audiobook of of Dr. Heiser's Unseen Realm, you know, and I had already gone through some chunks of it. And then my wife and I were listening to it during the long stretches to Mount Rushmore and back. And, and even just getting that worldview that, when there's these uh, acts that look like genocide, it's and people are like, "Oh, you serve a genocidal god." Well, no, th these weren't humans <laughs> that that were being wiped off the face of the earth. You know, the descendants of Canaan, you know, the Canaanites, and and all these individuals. These these are these are not just a mixture of like people trying to make it a make it a uh, social class you know black and white or something like that it's this is these are these sons of the the rebellious angels you know what i mean and their children right. and then these are the sons of god right the, his creation and they're they're creating an, what's an abomination and then it, it's almost like all of a sudden here bam jesus is on the scene in matthew and there's demons everywhere it's like where did all these demons come from and that's a right. fun question to ask your to ask students is well where where did demons come from i don't know they're god made them god made demons that's that's weird okay you know and he starts to go down this journey of you know the disembodied spirits of the nephilim you know they right. don't have they don't have the afterlife for the hum for humans and they so they are banished to roam the earth and that's why when jesus showed up on the scene it's like everybody's getting evicted from demons you know and you know what i mean but before that you don't see a whole lot of it in the old testament because right there it essentially the population of the demonic influence on the earth was still growing you know uh and possibly still today as well but and you have the story of you know nimrod who became a mighty one he was born a man but he became a gibberim you know through a gabor through a process of some kinds of transformation so whether it was a second incursion as you mentioned um which i believe is is likely the possible act here or other means of becoming you know through a process of transformation which could look like some people have mentioned you know the mark to mark the beast to come is you will no longer carry that imaging status of god because you'll no longer carry his dna through a un un an irrevocable transformation of who you are you know and so right. there's there's different thoughts and theologies on that but it's definitely something fun to i feel like the whole journey along this has just only pushed me closer to god now the the risk that i've seen is if people don't have christ at the center uh, it, it definitely can lend itself to Gnosticism too, you know, and, and people saying, well, I've got secret knowledge or 
let me let me study the now now I have better revelation because I've read the book of Enoch and I've I've looked after looked out for the uh you know the scrolls of the scrolls and the the pillars of the watchers you know and 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 things like that <laughs> and it's like you know you, you there is always that risk it's kind of like when you're a youth yeah. pastor or a pastor in general yes grace is as good as as anyone can imagine we cannot cheapen the grace of god like yes it does co- take away all of our sin but that doesn't that shouldn't be a liberty for us to walk in it right just like right. as we are allowed to pursue all this stuff don't let that become a distraction from the centrality of jesus christ at the center of it all and let it let it build out the picture of him even more so and so through all of that journey man of just like getting excited uh were there any like questions that you were trying to uh, seek after answers for um that maybe you didn't learn in traditional church i think you kind of already touched a little bit on that but like what were some of the ones that you're like i i read this differently before in the bible you know, especially with your history, I didn't, I never read it quite like that. And now, now I have to reread mm-hmm. the Bible almost with a new lens. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. There's been some for sure. I would say one of them would be, um, the age of the earth. Mm. Uh, probably like a lot of Christians, I was pretty much brought up to believe in a young earth. Uh, that's, you know, probably no more than 6,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know I do not believe in evolution by any means, but, sure. um, as I've gotten older, but as I've researched more, man, I'm definitely leaning to believe that mankind and earth is much more ancient than we've been led to believe. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one, been one of the biggest places I've wrestled is just trying to reconcile timelines. Right. Right. Um, as I go to Egypt and I see this stuff and, um, you know, a lot of Christians uh, make an assumption um, that the list of the patriarchs, you know, like from Genesis in Genesis from Adam to Noah is this comprehensive list mm-hmm. from father to firstborn son, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, and we usually base that off of the, uh, the Hebrew text. The me- is it the Mesoteretic text? Um, yeah. The Masoretic text. Yeah. That's how you say it. Um, but that's not the only text that was available because um, the early church used the Septuagint, the Greek version, right? Yeah. And if you look at that, they add like a thousand years to the timeline in that in that uh, genealogy timeline, right? Just in that text alone, assuming that it's unbroken from father to firstborn son. Um, so we're not told exactly how you know many years there were from Adam to the flood, mm-hmm. uh, but I think there's research that suggests. It's not necessarily linear from father to son. Um, so, and then when I read Genesis, you know, chapter one, verse one and right. chapter one, verse two, man, it just sure seems like there's a whole lot more going on here. Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I think I talked about this on one of the blurry episodes a little bit where you study the Hebrew of that and it means it's done. It's perfect. Right. It's finished. It's complete. That's verse one, chapter mm-hmm. one, verse one. And then verse two is saying something almost completely different. The earth was a uh, formless and void. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hebrew words, I think tohu and bohu, which basically means it was deserted. And I always thought it meant like a formless blob. That's not what it's saying. It means it was deserted. It means anarchy. Right. It means vanity. Uh, so does that correlate with the falling of the vain one? Mm-hmm. And 
are we looking here at an earth that's much more ancient than we've been led to believe where, and, and again, not in any way do I subscribe to evolution, but does this make sense of some of these timelines we see when we go to Egypt mm-hmm. and we see stuff carbon dated and some of these skeletons, uh, we saw a skeleton in Egypt that was um, carbon dated uh, at, I think it was 13,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's so much more going on there. So I think to answer your question, that's one of the big ones I've wrestled with is just the age of the earth, the genealogy we read about in Genesis and um, wrestling with that and being okay with it. Like you said, knowing that God is still on the throne, right? Christ is still supreme. Um, yet I think it's okay to wrestle with these questions. It's okay to ask these questions. It's because right. it, it's funny how um, I've got some friends that they pr- appreciate history and stuff and, and uh, they're not even into it that much, but you start talking about this stuff and they get uncomfortable mm. when you start. It's almost like we've made um, this 6,000 year timeline um, <laughs> part of scripture right. in yeah. a sense, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So that's been one of the biggest things I've wrestled with. And not that I have all the answers, but uh, I'm right. definitely viewing it all different than the way I was brought up. No, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I even have one of those fun world history charts on my wall on the other side over there, uh, biblical world history. Just, I do appreciate looking at the, um, at the picture of, of, you know, how, how, far, how far it was from Adam to Enoch, to Methuselah, to Noah, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but also knowing that, you know, there, there is a far, there's far more to our history than we realize, you know, there, uh, I mean, all that took place prior to the flood and um, even after the flood, you know, there, there's, I think a lot more that was going on in the world and throughout all of uh, creation. Also, uh, even as Dr. Heiser talks about, you know, um, the Genesis one concept there, because it's very one of those one of those controversial texts, uh, so to speak, because it's like, it, it, it's the is it the grammar that guides us, you know, is it this is this a three part act, like, you know, saying, uh, let's, let's go get pizza, right? You know, so it's, so by saying, let's go get pizza, I'm the one initiating the thought. I'm the one driving us to the pizza. And then I'm the one that's going to buy the pizza. Now you're going to eat the pizza. You know what I mean? And so is, is this, is this three parts, one act, or is this like in the beginning, God created heavens, the earth, and then boom, there's this gap of time. Who knows what, what took place uh, in, in that moment. All we have is what we're given, you know? And so obviously to some degree, anything above and beyond that, you know, Hey, praise God. Like God is good. God, ultimately God is the creator of all things, right? <laughs> he he's made all things and, and by him, all things are held together. Right. And, and we are to yield our life and surrender life to him. Um, but if there's more cool, you know what I mean? But there's nothing right. more supreme than, than God. Right. So looking at this, it, 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 I think Dr. Heiser even mentioned it saying that, it, it it's perhaps you know not not even the beginning of matter it's just a it's a matter of him putting all the matter together you know at that moment into something and so um you know i've heard people mention you know how they've measured moon dust you know and there's like six thousand years or so of growth of moon dust but i'm like also you kind of have to be there at the beginning to know exactly the rate of which moon dust grows you know i, I don't know so 
but I like the I like the young Earth and the old Earth theories. Uh, I think that uh, you know there's there's a lot of different worldviews to take as far as did was there a whole rebellion of angelic beings that then inhabited the earth because since when does god create something that is chaos you know and that i think that's the biggest question for me there is god created the heavens and the earth and then the earth was formless and with uh, formless uh, earth was formless and darkness however over the face of the earth you know and all this kind of crazy stuff it's like why does formless and void why does god create something that's empty why does god create something without life why does god create and the first response of creation is what looks like chaos that doesn't sound like creation looks like something took place to that. So, yeah. 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 I, I just agree with you on that side. You know, it just, it, to some degrees is like, what's, what's going on here? You know, what is really going on? Right. But, uh, some of the, some of the fun stuff that that's been on this journey of discovery of like this idea of Nephilim, Nephilim technology. I was, someone's was arguing with me on Instagram the other day. And I'm like, it's, it's not something you can do in a, in a, in an Instagram comment section, it's not effective. You know what I mean? But yeah, you know, when you're reading the, the, uh, book of Enoch and you're, you're getting some other context of how the angels influenced mankind and taught them all kinds of things, root cuttings, pharmacia, divination, even how to smite the embryo in the womb that it might die, you know, um, and, and all these wickednesses that were taught or imparted by, um, you know, the, 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 the fallen angels, those who descended on Mount Hermon, um, you realize that they had a really big ripple impact upon the earth, even today. And not only just the things that they did and taught, but the things that they, you know, perhaps still continue to influence though in chains and bondage under the earth, they still have demons roaming all about the place. And so who's really influencing what to really go deep <laughs> into that yeah. concept? What, what have been some of the stuff that you've discovered about, um, ancient technologies, because I feel like perhaps, uh, while I let you answer that question, that we're way less advanced than perhaps we were in a time past. We think we're getting smarter. And, mm. and I think that there were, there was a lot, I mean, I think we are developing, but I think that there was also a lot of technology that we, we just don't know about that existed way before us, you know, and now we're basically cyborgs and, and dependent upon our phones here <laughs> for information. <laughs> we store no information left in our brains, you know, and so we're losing our capacity to, uh, to, to develop our brains as we just, we become dependent upon these things. So my question is, what have you discovered about this, uh, Nephilim technology or its influence today or the incursions and, and whatnot? Oh man, I could talk on this one forever. Exciting. Um, I'll start out. I like the way you asked that. Nephilim technology related to um, today, I think you said. You know, when I went to Peru years ago, uh, the first time, I was with uh, Brian Forster and we were seeing a lot of the main sites, Sacsayhuaman, Ojante, Tambo, Machu Picchu, but he took us to this one site uh, that I'd never heard of, and I don't think any others on our in our tour did. It was called uh, Nuapahuaca, and it was this cave in the middle of nowhere, way off the beaten path. He said, "I'm going to take you guys to see something that your average tourist will never see." So he takes us off um, into this kind of remote valley along these train tracks. And then we hiked up, we started to hike up the side of this kind of this, this mountain. 
And uh, he said, way up there is a cave, and I'm going to show you something pretty amazing inside. And so we're climbing this. It wasn't extremely hard, but, you know, it was it was a it was quite a big hillside. And uh, as you get higher up, you kind of started to see some Inca ruins, which was cool. Um, and then I saw it up in the distance was this cave. I mean, this alone is cool enough. Seeing some Inca ruins in Peru in a, a, an epic cave. I mean, I could have yeah. stopped there. Yeah. But I was absolutely blown away when I went inside this cave. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't anywhere near civilization. This isn't... Uh, Anywhere, you know, near Cusco where there's power outlets, where people could say, well, it's somebody with modern day tools. This is remote in a high mountainous cave. Inside was precision megalithic architecture. On one side, you had what looked like, it could have been, it could have been looked like an altar or it could have looked like a console. It was very futuristic. precision cuts trapezoidal um and then on the other side of this cave it was like this perfect rectangle cut out with lasers and inside was a 3d door that looked like it went straight into the mountain but it was you know it was a faux door it was a false door again the fact that this was in a high mountainous cave in the middle of nowhere was mind-blowing but then what happened next kind of will help answer your question as far as the technology piece so we know this is megalithic we know this is ancient uh and again i should say a little side note you know the mainstream narrative narrative would say well this was the inca who did this you know 400 years ago right um the inca had bronze tools chisels and hammers on the most scale of hardness that ranks is like a three or four. The most scale of hardness determines the hardness of stone. So if you're looking at, I think it's uh, whether it was bronze or copper chisel, whatever they had, it was three or four on the, on the scale of hardness. This is like granite or andesite, which ranks we're talking eight or nine on the most scale of hardness. Right. Yeah. So you can't take a softer material and not just not just shape something but precision shape it to where it looks like almost the laser was used Mm -hmm. that that would be akin to using like a plastic knife to try to cut down a tree right yeah so there's no way the inca could have created this according to what the archaeological record says they used as tools right so we're sitting around this and again this is a big group mostly unbelievers there was kind of like an uh, an Incan shaman guy there that was helping out our tour guide. And this guy is waving incense and beating on a drum. And he tells everybody to, uh, you know, just basically meditate and mm. take it all in. And I'm thinking, oh, man, there's <laughs> no way I'm taking all this in. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so everybody's just kind of closing their eyes as this guy beats on his drum and invites in what, who knows what, right? Yeah. Well, there was this guy in the group who was, you know, everybody thought he was the smartest guy in the whole group. He was a, a proud atheist and he literally did have a genius IQ. You could tell the way yeah. he could say stuff, memorize stuff. This guy was brilliant. Um, but in the middle of this 
incantation thing, this guy starts um, screaming and yelling and freaking out. And, you know, everybody comes to his rescue and they're basically what's going on. And when this guy settles down, he goes on to share how when that was happening, he saw this uh, puma come through that, you know, portal and enter him or, or come, come at him, something like that to where yeah. it literally scared the life out of him. And, you know, you would have had to been there to see this, but it basically scared everybody. Oh yeah. But that for me was quite the experience because it, I believe it, it brought this correlation between the megalithic technologies and the spirit world and the original makers of this stuff and a lot of why it was created, right? And how still today, this is why people flock to these megaliths, um, you know, because there's energies and right. um, and a lot of people claim, you know, they're, they're portals to other uh, dimensions or other places. And so to see that was just mind-blowing because it brought in this, this spiritual um, side of that. Uh, I could say a lot more, but that's how I'll start out answering it. Yeah, it's it's incredible because it really connects the these these high spiritual locations with a very active uh, influence up, up from the spirit realm, and 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 I feel like it helps you understand that there was a unique purpose for some a lot of these these unknown mysteries. I think there was even a story about a uh, first nation, uh, some indigenous people here, and there were the star people that came down and told them, you know, white, the white people essentially were coming, danger was coming, now come with us, uh, we'll, we'll take you to our place. And they went to, I forget where it's at, but it's that giant portal that's just a, a door cut out into the side of a mountain. And one, a, one, a couple of people said that they weren't gonna go. And then they came and, left and they everyone was already gone they had gone through the portal and it was closed and and so when you start looking at these these histories um that a lot of them are, are passed down orally you know through oral tradition uh and, and and some are written down but there was a lot more supernatural stuff taking place it, it, you know you've got other um sound devices you know that i think that like people use a lot of sound technology i, I think it's even in the in the underneath the temples of the Aztecs or the Mayans, they used to be filled with like mercury, liquid mercury or something like that. Perhaps you would know more about that, but there's evidence of pools of mercury underneath them. And what the heck is that, all that about? And what is this technology? What is this? How did they have, how do they move such things? How did they literally scoop this, this stone? It looks like ice cream scoops took it. You know what I mean? It, 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 or, or like a hand just dug it out of the, a, a massive hand. And so just trying to comprehend not only what, what, what it was, but how does, how does what it was impact us today? And, and does it have an impact on our relationship with God uh, today? But even more so, um, you know, what should we be aware of? Because I think that that is the concern of a, a deception down the road, because if we can erase a supernatural worldview history, it'd be a lot easier for a supernatural entity to come on the scene at a later time and confuse uh, confuse 
believers. You know, I think even the Pope not that long ago said, well, if there are aliens, then we'll kind of have to relook at how we interpret scripture and baptize them into the church as well. It's like, wait a minute. Wow. Hold on a second. You know, I had a, had a guy on, on my podcast a couple weeks ago who he he's got a degree in geology and that, and he was, and he's talking about old earth, young earth and stuff like that. But he talked about, you know, that Pope uh, essentially is revisiting these ideas of, well, if there are alien creatures, we're going to have to revisit how we've interpreted in scripture and that Christ must've died for them too. And it's like, I'm pretty sure Jesus descended in the end of the world, ministered to the spirits in prison that Jude, you know, talks about as well as Enoch, when he says they're imprisoned in chains in deep darkness, you know, until their time of judgment, mm. he went down there and said, you know, you guys still have your judgment. This was not for you for your salvation. This was for their salvation. So I think that there is a benefit in knowing more about the supernatural history and the worldview. So when it is as of the days of Noah, when the coming of the son of man comes, right? That's what the Bible says as in the days of Noah, so will be the day. So will be the coming of the son of man. So it's when there'll be all kinds of fantastical things taking place. We've got second skin coming into reality where they're making AI having, you know, consciousness and developing their own regenerative skin. I mean, just like, there's a lot of things that, I don't know what the impact of all of this technology has on us and how much of it, how much of it is new technology, how much of it is old technology. And is some of this technology coming to us by natural means, or are we being influenced uh, to rediscover some of these technologies? And even as that man you talked about through this emptying of themselves, this atheist, this guy who has no faith, clearly open to, um, whatever was wanting to move in that room more so than you. And, uh, and through means literally almost maybe did receive, but what expressed, he saw like you, someone, you don't be an atheist and, and say, I saw a spirit come through that screen and fill me like, you know, like, right. You don't believe anything. So like clearly something crazy insane happened. And so I think it's important for us to be aware of what is the potential reality as we get closer and closer to those days, you know, the end, whatever that might be. What, what are your, some well of your thoughts on that? No, that's, that's well said. I think, um, you know, those who control can control the past. Um, they think they can control the future. Right. And I think that is one of the important reasons why we want to know and research what was going on in Genesis, who were the watchers, um, what were these Nephilim doing? What was this technology used to build uh, these pyramids and these obelisks? And I'll touch on that in just a minute. Um, because, um, like you said, it seems to definitely correlate with some of what we're experiencing today. Um, everything we're hearing now is transhumanism, right? Yep. Um, we're hearing a whole lot about trans and again, I mean, think about it. Transgender. If that becomes mainstream, it's not a big jump to go transhuman. Nope. Transgender, transhuman. Yep. And uh, we see that that is where the mainstream culture is trying to take us. They're just trying to pull us over that cliff yep. and try to make it so romantic looking um, when it's going to be nothing but um, that. And yeah, so yeah. you mentioned ice cream scoops. That was to me, one of the smoking guns on my last Egypt tour. We went to the Aswan quarry, which is 
This is in the southern part of Egypt. This is eight hours at least south of the Great Pyramids. Okay. But this is the one spot where all this rose granite came from. This was the quarry. So, okay, imagine all the rose granite used to build the pyramids and a lot of the megalithic temples up in Giza. How in the world did they transport it eight hours by our cars today in, in ancient times, right? Gosh. Um, so you go to this All that. quarry. Yeah, you go to this quarry and you see um, what's known as the unfinished obelisk. It's, uh, I think it's, it is the biggest obelisk in the world. It's unfinished. It was never taken out. Um, but that, that obelisk, and there's one behind it that's smaller. To me, this is the smoking gun because when you get up close to these obelisks and they let you walk around them, you can literally see um, the evidence of this ancient tool that these megalithic builders had. I mean, I don't want to ruin it by saying it was like a crane, but it was some kind of arm that could extend down and literally scoop into that rose granite, which again is like a nine on the most scale of hardness. It's full of uh, you know crystals. Today's standards, you'd need a diamond-tipped saw. Okay. And they had something that could scoop down in there and just pull it out because these scoop marks are like one meter long and they just go. And where you see the scoop connect to the outer wall, there's this dark Brown line, Hmm. which, um, you know, suggests an ultrasonic type cutting tool. Right. And right. so it, it means an excessive sign of heat. So that was just crazy to see. Um, there's no chisel and hammer that could do that. No. Just just to try to make that one meter section with a chisel and hammer, you'd be there for probably 10 years. Yeah. Right. And this is just every one meter, there's a scoop all the way down, deep down, we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're probably talking hundreds of thousands of tons per scoop. Yeah, if I were to take a random guess in my unprofessional idea. Yeah, so there's not only the mystery of how how this this stuff was taken out and shaped, but then, like I said, how it was moved. Mm -hmm. I did a little research. Um, In 2008, China made the biggest um, super crane in the world. It set a record for lifting. I think it was 20,000 plus pounds. Well, this unfinished obelisk that's laying in there, I believe, is 1,200 tons. Oh my gosh. So that's like um, 240,000 pounds, right? Is that right? Do I yeah. do my math right? Right. So how in the world is um, are the ancients, okay? We're talking when the mainstream narrative tells us all they had was ropes and pulleys <laughs> and they were putting them on boats. How, how would they move that eight hours to Giza? So that's the kind of stuff that you see that really makes your mind explode. Mm-hmm. And then um, just going into the um, the Great Pyramid, I just posted on our Instagram, mm-hmm. Megalithic Marvels, a, a little reel of um, the view from inside what they call the, the King's Chamber. Although mm-hmm. no king was ever discovered in this, this is considered the Holy Holies inside the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. And you see this rose granite box Again, which we've been told is, well, this was just the sarcophagus of this this king. Um, 
But was this possibly something else? Again, we're talking technology. Was this a, a housing case for maybe some kind of energy device? Yeah. Um, some people have theorized maybe the Ark of the Covenant was in here. Um, I don't wow. know about that, but you can see it's damaged. It, it's precise, yet it was damaged because this thing is so old. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the crazy thing is the the uh, Valley of the Kings where all the dynastic Egyptians were found. And when I say dynastic, I'm talking about the, the great dynasties of Egypt, the guys who lived from 3200 BC to 30 BC to give a timeline. Right. They're all buried in the Valley of the Kings, which is eight plus hours away again by car from the Great Pyramid. Wow. So we've been led to believe that... Um, most people think the Valley of the Kings is right next to the pyramids. Again, it's it's way far away, and it's just an old, it's just a hill. Uh, it's just a hill where these these uh, tunnels have been carved out of a hill. Oh, Again, man. inside the Valley of the Kings, you see uh, hieroglyphs, you see mummies, you see art depictions. But in the Great Pyramid or any of the Great Pyramids, you don't see any of that on these bare megalithic walls. Like no and historical so, stuff written down inside, so to speak. It's more like, seems more like it's function. than Exactly. Hmm. And so uh, Chris Dunn and many others have theorized that, yeah, well, maybe the Great Pyramid was um, harmonically coupled with the earth, right? It mm-hmm. was some kind of holistic energy device that was constructed to build some kind of highly technical society with energy. And so according to this theory, um, you know, the earth would basically be the power source and the pyramids tapping into it. And you said you had a guy on, on your show recently uh, who was a geologist. Geology yeah. plays so much into this when you look at the stones that were used mm-hmm. and the different properties that they have and release. Mm-hmm. And so um, once basically the pyramid was primed in the ancient times, it, it's like it's a coupled isolator. Uh, again, harmonically tuned, attached to the larger vibrating body, which is the earth, drawing energy from it. And then water would have been the source of this energy. Mm. And then when you look at, um, again, the work of Robert Schock, we're talking about dating the Sphinx. Um, it looks like there was thousands of years ago, the Nile River ran right next to the Great Pyramids. And then underneath uh, the pyramids, there's uh, a lot of research that's been done that shows there's masses of uh, masses body masses of water under there so um again are we looking at some kind of energy device housing um a couple years ago the journal of applied physics released a pretty cool study uh, that was based off the research of scientists from germany and russia and they concluded that the great great pyramid could concentrate electromagnetic energy in its internal chambers and under its base. So, I mean, that was from the journal of applied physics, which would mean we kind of have some scientific data. Yeah. It's pure review theory. Yeah. Yeah. That the great pyramid was a technological structure of some kind. So that's a little bit about some of the technology. Um, Another thing I would point out is in um, one of my favorite spots when I visited Egypt this last time, it, it was something I never would have thought would have been my favorite, but it was what I kind of discovered again, one of those aha moments. Um, there's this site again, down near Luxor. This is the Southern part of Egypt. It's called the Ramazeum. 
And, um, you know, on its face, it looks like, well, this is just another great dynastic Egyptian site. Mm -hmm. It's uh, considered the memorial temple for uh, Ramses II, who ruled from 1300, about 1300 BC. And again, the dynastic Egyptians were amazing. Uh, they did some incredible stuff. So I don't want to minimize that. Sure. Um, but when you start to look around this site with your megalithic goggles, as I like to say, yeah, you start to realize, okay, wait a second. What is going on here? And especially when you have a tour guide like um, ours, Muhammad Ibrahim, who, who specializes. He's the only Egyptologist that will basically confess on record that somebody predated the dynastic Egyptians. Oh, wow. And so um, it's really cool to go with him okay. because he's going to point this stuff out to you. So you go to this, this site called the Ramesseum again, because they say this was all about Pharaoh Ramses II. Well, you look around and again, it's, it looks cool. There's mass, there's big walls, sandstone walls, which is much softer than granite. There's sandstone statues all made in sections and you see hieroglyphs and it all looks cool. You go around the corner and you see a massive 1,000 ton statue made out of a single piece of granite. Hmm. Now, this statue has been badly damaged. Only the torso and like uh, hips are left. This thing is precision carved and it features muscle tone. Wow. You look at the shoulders and it's got 3D. It's like 3D embedded symbols that wow. look like they, again, might've been carved with something like a laser. And so Muhammad points out, and again, other researchers before him, that this thing is megalithic. Mm -hmm. You are looking at a piece of uh, architecture that was created with advanced technology. Mm -hmm. And it probably was created to... Um, emulate or um, show us who these megalithic builders were. Wow. And um, so you see that. And then there's a couple other pieces at this site that are made of granite or this greenish grandorite, far superior than everything else around it. So the question is, um, and this is really the key phrase word in Egypt is repurpose. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Ramses probably came along and found this site and um, was blown away by it, knowing this was built by the gods, they would have said, right? Yeah. The yeah. gods of the golden age. And he tagged the site with his name all over. So Egyptology tells us, well, this is Ramses' uh, mortuary temple because his name's all over it. Well, he just mm -hmm. tagged it. Um, and then he built his walls and his columns around it. Um, because again, if Ramses had commissioned this statue, why didn't he make everything else the same precision? Right. You know, yeah. one solid piece with muscle tone. Why are his statues made in sections and really more crude um, with no muscle tone? And so that brings to so many other questions like, okay, so if Ramses are we looking here at one of the original statues again, which I think we are. And did the, um, because th these symbols also have what we would call hieroglyphs. So what I think is happening here is 
the dynastic Egyptians retained some fragments of the lost knowledge, and they adopted these in these symbols into the dynastic language. Mm. Right. So the takeaway is we not only have again these incredible megalithic wonders, the pyramids, we have megalithic temples, which are different. Um of Sirion of Abydos or the Valley Temple. Mm-hmm. These are these are built with the same megalithic stones, but the function is completely different than a pyramid. If you walk through the Great Pyramid or any of those, I, I often say it's backbreaking. Even with the modern day wooden planks they've put in there, uh, I'm still fairly young. I could barely climb up and out of that with a small backpack. How wow. would the dynastic Egyptians have crawled through a 300-foot passageway with statues and relics um, in a ceremony, right? right? It's impossible. Right. It's not even functional for a human to use like that. But again, the megalithic temples are, and they were created, I believe, to heal the body in a holistic way. Mm. Um, so you've got the pyramids, you've got the temples. But then that was my big revelation from this last trip was I think we even have megalithic statues uh, that were were made by the megalithic builders that represented the gods or represented them. Right. And we have fragments of their lost language. Do you think that the megalithic builders then were these guys, were these descendants of the rebellious angels? Were these the angels who rebelled themselves? Were the Nephilim? Were they? I think there's also another word for when you ha- when the Nephilim had children with humans. Uh, they were Eliud, I think, is the other word for it. But uh, mm-hmm. w- were they? What was it? Their creations or was it angelic, hand built structures? What do you think? Boy, that's a great question. I don't think anybody can answer that one. Sure. Um, it's crazy because I was just um, on a show talking about Lovelock Cave and the giant skeletons that were found in in North America here in Nevada. And it's amazing to me that we've got giant eight foot, 10 foot redheaded skeletons, red haired skeletons that were discovered in this cave in North America that seem so primitive. Right. Yeah. But they were, I believe, some type of Nephilim, hybrid, cannibalistic, double rows of teeth. Mm-hmm. But then you go to Egypt and you see this amazing, it's like light worlds ahead of Lovelock Cave, right? Mm-hmm. Why do we have giants in Lovelock Cave? And why do we have precision like the uh, pyramids over here? So I think it's kind of like, you know, today as humans... Um, we would probably say with our iPhones and our technology here for podcasting, we are just the epitome of uh, high class, right? Sure. <laughs> and But we've got humans living down in uh, the Amazon that are living like they lived a thousand years ago. True. Um, it's just different. We're not all using the same technology that w- mm-hmm. that's it's available to us. And I think it might have been like that even with the Nephilim. Mm. Um, I think the watchers, as you referenced Enoch, they did share this lost knowledge, Um, but I don't think it was equally used, if that makes sense. 
by the uh, the hybrids. Hmm. Uh, for some reason in Egypt, they it seems like they had a monopoly on it. Hmm. And um, yeah, uh, but I still can't answer whether um, it's just interesting. I still can't answer that with, you know, all the confidence in the world, but it's important to note that even in uh, Egypt, uh, that we do have references of to giants. Yeah. Um, and there was the, I did a show talking about the, um, the thumb or the finger that was found in Egypt that would have um, measured onto a 15 foot tall creature. Right. So yeah. we find weird anomalies like that. And there was a King Kaskamway of Egypt who was said to have been a giant. I think he was, you know, at least eight, eight foot tall. So we've got stuff like that, that definitely, um, again, harkens to our classical thought of giants like Goliath. Mm -hmm. um, but I, again, I don't think all the giants had six fingers. Um, I don't think, I, I think some of them did. Um, when we went to the Egyptian museum in Cairo, on our last day, we saw something amazing, uh, which blew my mind. We saw, well, I'll preface it by saying, okay, so we saw this. Um, now, what, what we just, what I just talked about in the Great Pyramid, I don't think is a sarcophagus. I think that was some kind of container or box for an energy device. But in the um, Egyptian museum, we came across a sarcophagus that was probably 10 or 12 feet long and very wide. And this thing was made, and I'm going to feature it soon on, on uh, Megalithic Marvel's Instagram. It was crafted precision out of, again, rose granite. Mm. To where you look at the lip of this thing, and I mean, it's just, it's precision. No chisel, no hammer could have done this. But the big takeaway is this is so what I think we're looking at here is what what the dynastic Egyptians buried themselves in, in the Valley of the Kings. You know, we're talking 1300 B.C. in wood. It was a copy of what they had seen. I think probably the real ancient Egyptians bury themselves in in these megalithic granite sarcophaguses. Again, this thing is 10 feet long. Right. What's that tell me? It tells me, well, the person buried in here was probably a giant. Wow. That's, it's, it's incredible because I mean, even not to go down this rabbit trail, but like there was, you know, copies of the emails sent on some uh, gov governmental federal level of people discovering the burial chamber of the watchers and Nimrod and all these different things in these, in these giants. And, and, but, and so, so I, I feel like it's very important for us to know, like giants were among us. I mean, biblically they were among us and um, a, a long time ago. Uh, and even when you look at, depending on how you interpret uh, the, what, what the book of Enoch talks about those first initial giants, uh, it, 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 I think the scroll is slightly fractured. So they're, it's either, 30 L's, 300 L's or 3000 L's is the, is the measurement. And so, I mean, you'd have giants that were, <laughs> depending on how big you're looking at it, like, you know, from almost three miles, you know, a, 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 you know, three miles tall, uh, or I mean a mile tall, you know, to 30 feet tall, you know, or 300 feet tall. And it, it depends on 
I really don't know because when you look at the greenhouse world effect prior to the flood and how things grew bigger, it's like, is it possible that there were giants that were 30 feet plus tall, you know, maybe even into the hundreds of feet, depending on how it's read or interpreted, you know, the other historical concepts of where we see these, uh, I think like devil's tower, devil's peak or whatever. Some people think that, oh, that those were the trees that, you know, Gabriel were, was commanded to chop down, right? You know, uh, the ancient trees and and they're actually not mountaintops. They were trees. It's like, these are stumps. When I saw that, my brain just broke. I, I, I was so, <laughs> so impressed at some of the ideas, but I'll wrap this into two, two kind of questions here that maybe you have insight on of one, uh, as you're talking about all these mysteries, the pyramids being, uh, harm, harm, you know, harmonically balanced with the earth as, as tools. And, um, I believe that there is so much that we have left to discover and that we will discover, you know, in eternity with God and new heaven and earth, but like even stuff today that we, especially as believers relegate to new age and mysticism, uh, as opposed to God saying, I, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof don't worship these things, but yes, there is healing in sound frequencies. There is healing, you know, ultimately healing is in Christ, you know, but like I've created these things and in these things, you know, it's, it's, it's taking the concept of, do we always just pray when we have a headache or do we go take an, do we, do we take some ibuprofen and have a glass of water? You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so not, uh, as long as we keep our focus on Jesus. So I think that stuff like sound, uh, maybe even crystals, you know, as long as it's not the worship of, but perhaps there are mysteries in it that God has yet for us to reveal, uh, and discover, you know, um, that's not a worship of, but a use of what God gave us to cure all things and, and to, and discover all things, but also, with all that technology that gets twisted and warped and and turned into worship of the thing itself uh with as it's been influenced by the giants and the nephilim what do you believe or think as far as we know that giants did exist do do they still exist today or will we will they exist in a time to come or is there an incursion of nephilim that we are unaware of from your to search and perspective thoughts love this question um you know i would have said probably five years ago no giants don't exist anymore um then i i've come across some accounts that man are pretty intriguing i did a deep dive on easter island i did a whole investigative series on that you guys can find on megalithicmarvels.com just search easter island and it'll pop up but near the end of the series, um, I document some research I found from the early Dutch explorers. I think his name was Jacob Rogovin. He was the first kind of European type guy to set foot in the 1700s on Easter Island. Well, I went and found his kind of manuscripts, his ship logs, him and his uh, like his co-captain. Mm-hmm. And they mention in their own book um, of their travels to these islands um, that I don't know if it was, I think it was a small Island near Easter Island that they came across um, literal living giants. I think they, they said they were like 10 to 12 feet 
in length. And they, again, they appeared primitive, but they were unlike anything they had ever seen. Again, this is coming from a 1700s when uh, this was before political correctness. Yeah. Um, so, boy, that kind of got my attention. Like, we've got a, a big time explorer in his day writing about seeing 12 foot tall giants um, near Easter Island on the shore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you take that and then you take, um, I've, I've read more recently, I've been studying more about the accounts of the conquistadors and when they were coming to Peru, yeah. I did an interview with Timothy Alvarino about this, where he's done extensive research. Um, you can't even read all of the accounts from the chroniclers, the Spanish chroniclers about the giant tribes and the giant peoples that they encountered as they came through Mexico and they came through Peru and South America. I, even in some places like Florida too, off the coast of Florida, where they said, again, this is during the inquisition, they, they were uh, meeting giant tribes. They usually talk, chalked it up to, you know, first nation people. Um, but again, are all these people lying about this or were they seeing these these massive people um and then then we've got this story you've probably heard um about this account i think it's in uh, iraq where um i can't what's the what's the what's the name they give of this giant yeah they they basically flew him out on a giant uh like cargo plane right after they went in and and like shot him or he was red hair yeah, all the, that kind of stuff the kandahar giant that's kandahar. it yeah there we go yeah 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 so la marzuli actually who i referenced before i think broke this story um and if you haven't heard the interview you got to look it up look up kandahar giant mm-hmm. where la marzuli basically talked with the it was i think it was the pilot of this helicopter way back during the um the iraq war under you know george w and the story goes that the soldiers were called to this area, this remote mountainous area in Iraq, I believe. And they found this, this huge giant in this cave that killed some guys. And they, they slew mm-hmm. it in a firefight and its body was flown out to the U.S., some U.S. Army base. That story uh, was very intriguing and at least made me do a double take of could there still be some... Nephilim giants left on the earth in very remote places. And I guess I would honestly have to say today, yes, I think there could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when I, when I put all those together. Right. So with, with all of these components and I guess one of the questions that I get asked from time to time, uh, just talking with just in talking interpersonally with other people about this extracurricular type studies I do is, uh, the scripture that talks about, um, you know, committing yourself to don't, don't commit yourself to endless genealogies and myths. And it's like, so don't you feel like studying all this stuff? Like what's the fruit of it? And and for me, I always encourage them. Well, I think it just pushes me closer to a, a greater revelation of the supremacy of, of God, uh, his plan to redeem all mankind and, uh, restore all things, you know, make all things new. And I don't think that sin is so powerful that Jesus, uh, that God had to say, well, I'm gonna have to make earth 2.0 now. I think that God through Jesus and through at the end of the culmination of all things, when 
you know, there's a sound, I think it's Re- Revelation 11, 15, and there was a shout in heaven and voices saying, uh, the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of our God. And, and, uh, and as, as, you know, God establishes his kingdom on that great and terrible day. But with all that, studying all of this stuff, studying all this information, uh, for me, it, it has only pushed me more into an intimate revelation of God's word, a more for a, a more in-depth picture of what God has been restoring, you know, what he's, what he overcame and defeated on our behalf, what he's defending us from today. And even the, even to be able to, in the end, hold fast to the truth. Because, uh, you know, it says that in the last days, even the elective by any means will be, will be deceived. And I think that that's a piece that is important to me in, in doing this extra um, in-depth study of a, of a wider worldview of, of history of mysteries of megalithic marvels of giants of the supernatural influence of nephilim and the and the rebellious angels and and the demonic so on that day it won't be like all history has been washed away and now this is all new it's oh this is just again what happened before because it does say as in the days of noah so shall be in the coming the son of man right and so i think if we know truly the stories of our past will be able to endure that which is to come. But if we completely erase the narrative that's being progressively done one by one through the school districts and through education and through his, uh, history, uh, it's definitely stripping away a foundation for us to be able to call out, call a spade when we see a spade. Like, hey, th- I've seen this before. It's just like when the enemy, you know, Satan tries to trip you up, you know, and sin and all that kind of stuff. and when you, you you're going to go around the mountain again until you start to realize the pattern and say oh i'm not going to fall stumble to those same pattern habits of of thought and self-destructive behaviors but i'm going to stop now you know and and same when it comes to making healthy lifestyle choices you know what i mean you have to sometimes you have to experience a thing or at least study th- a thing to know about it so you can prepare yourself for it to come with all of that how do you feel all of this information and study that you've been doing which i mean you could probably go on as you do on your social media channels uh, with endless a supply of amazing revelations. Uh, I encourage you guys follow him, you know, and, and, and check out his content there, megalithicmarvels.com and his, and his Instagram uh, as well. But how is this really equipping you? What is the fruit of, of all this study, I guess would be the question I would be asked. What's the fruit, a long-term fruit for you as a believer or fruit for, a young person as a believer to, to really dive deeper in, in these components of our history? Great question. You know, I was um, actually a youth pastor myself years ago. And uh, I had mentioned, I think I mentioned 2012. Um, so when I started to connect these dots, I started to do a series every year in youth, basically kind of about apologetics and, uh, the mysteries of the Bible. I can't remember what I titled it, but it was something like that. And I was blown away at the response that we got with our students, especially the males. They were so hooked on this stuff, um, talking about the existence of possible giants, megaliths, um, Noah's Ark, stuff like this. And um, just the fruit I saw in that led me to believe, man, people are hungry for this stuff, not just because they're hungry for it, but uh, students today, 
uh, young adults today, everything they're seeing is, you know, Marvel superheroes, right? Everything mm-hmm. is the supernatural. Atheism is actually dying. Hollywood's yeah. embracing spirituality. They're embracing the supernatural. Um, I mean, the Marvel movies themselves uh, are proof of all this. Right. And so if the church is silent or just um, not addressing these topics, mm-hmm. number one, we're just being ir- we're totally being irrelevant and boring um and two like you said we're not um god gave us the word for a reason and he tells us to search it out you know uh jude the book of jude references the book of enoch right and so right there god's given us a clue uh to do research um you know yeah Moses wrote Genesis, but obviously all, all, all the Bible comes from God. Why is God telling us about Genesis 6, 4 and the Nephilim if he didn't want us to search it out? Why is it in the scriptures, right? right. right. Um, and I think of it this way, you know, pastors devote their lives to, uh, you know, they'll go to college for four or five years to pull out everything out of, you know, the scriptures, Right. So right. why not, why not do it all again, as, as long as Jesus is the center. So to me, that's why it's, it's important. That's why it's relevant. Um, it's amazing. I've almost every uh, decently close friend I have, that's a male. When, when you start talking to them about these subjects there, it's like their mind opens up to get excited about the Bible. Yeah. You, you mean, it's like, they're saying, you mean to tell me God is way more epic than i thought there's this story is is so much greater than i was led to believe they get excited they want to talk about it they want to meet about it um that to me is is the proof that this is good fruit because it's getting us together it's getting again men specifically excited about the bible you mean to tell me that goliath was an actual orc like figure (laughs) Um, that right. David slew, like, okay, now I got to read the story again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the kind of fruit I've seen in my own life and that I've seen in the lives of those around me that show me this is good. And it points to um, how great God is, how um, epic the Bible is. And um, again, like you referenced, I think it correlates with what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. No, I think that I think that's a great answer, honestly. <laughs> you know, thank you because it really has been a journey of just discovering these truths, and and I think that at the risk of sounding uh, off, but if if you look at the works of like Jordan Peterson, you know, I don't know if you know of him, but like Jordan B. Peterson, he he has amassed a huge following of men, you know, and. It's not because he wrote his content for men per se. He just addressed certain topics and men were drawn to that. And and I feel like it's indicative of in our culture and possibly a lot of other cultures, everything is really written in such a way that is catered to attract women. Even even when you walk into a church service, it's there's a lot of components that are catered to towards women. And that's why 
you know, years ago, uh, you being a Washingtonian would know, you know, the, the work of, you know, Mars Hill and, and Mark Driscoll. And, and um, there, there was a uniqueness that attracted men to get back in church, you know, and um, but all that to say is, is the more and more I'm looking at these translations and Bible studies and, you know, I, I looking over the passion translation and some of these worship songs, it's like, it makes me feel like I'm in a homosexual relationship with Jesus Christ when I'm reading some of these scriptures. And I'm like, I don't know if I want a sloppy wet kiss from Jesus on the mouth. You know what I mean? Or like, and it's like, I, I want to know the, the, the lion of Judah, you know, I want to know, uh, the, the, the God who commanded David to slaughter, you know, the Canaanites, a, a whole race of giants that, that were, uh, terrorizing and, and, and you know, abom they were an abomination, honestly. And that, this is the God I want to know as well. Yes. I get his, his compassion, his mercy, his love, El Shaddai, the, the all sufficient one, the multi-breasted one, as it said, you know, it's like, I understand that he is, he, he is caring and compassionate and loving, but I also, I want to know that which is virtuous. I feel like virtue has been stripped away. You know, people, when you say virtue signaling, like has nothing to do with virtue at all. We don't even teach Greek uh, and, uh, and myths and, and history anymore in schools. Uh, they're, they're being stripped of the mythology, which is difficult because they don't even teach the Bible in there. And then we start stripping away all the mythology you learn, you lose all those epics that have a component of virtue. And I feel like there's a world longing for something virtuous. And so when you start to see um, these pieces unlock inside the minds of men, and they're excited about the word of God again, they actually want to like, wait a minute, let me read my Bible again. You know, anything that's going to say, wait a minute, let me read my Bible again. I feel like that's a win. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But yeah. let me study my Bible a little bit more. I guess I guess that would bring me to, though I'm sure we could talk about a million other things. I want to I want to have uh, you know grace for your time as well and, and everything. But as we come to whatever the last days look like, I know there's a lot of different perspectives. What what are your thoughts and how would you encourage somebody, uh, a young person, with what you've learned, especially in the light of hey maybe there is going to be a day within our lifetime or maybe your grandchildren's or great grandchildren's lifetime. Who knows? But that you know, uh, there is an end to how things are going now. And what, what, what are your thoughts of, of that? And how would you encourage somebody? Yeah, man, I would say, um, you know, like I, I said, it's kind of at the top of the show, we only get one shot at this life on earth. So live it to the fullest. Um, know that, uh, you know, God knows you perfectly, but he loves you perfectly. And so, you know, receive his love. I, I I don't think you can live abundantly and live life to the fullest without knowing and receiving God's love. Um, you know, because then you're just going to be riddled with the fear and the insecurity and the self-doubt. And and I'm somebody who's fought a lot of that um, throughout my life. And so I would say, yeah, man, I mean, sometimes it feels like uh, man, is Christ coming today? Maybe it's tomorrow. Like we've got to be on the brink, right? Yeah, right? I don't know, no one knows the day or hour, but man, it seems like it's imminent. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, I know that people probably a hundred years ago thought the same thing, right? Right. And so um, it's living life to the fullest and it's, it's receiving God's love and um, 
I always like to tell people that God majors in taking uh, misfits and turning them into masterpieces. And so um, that's what we see with almost every hero in the Bible, Gideon, Moses, David, Peter. Um, I, I could go on and on. Right. And um, so receive God's love, know that God can use you. Um, he, he created you for a reason. He's given you gifts and talents and, um, and uh, believe it. You know, I like one of my favorite scriptures is uh, Ephesians 2.10. I think it is that uh, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so we can do the good things he planned for us uh, long ago. So um, I like to say we might be flawed, but we're chosen. And, um, you know, if you feel ordinary, it, it's only because God's called you to do the extraordinary. And so, uh, and take risks. I think that's another thing I would tell people in these end days is take risks, step out in faith. Uh, I mean, I'm someone who's trying to live this out. Just just the whole megalithic marvels thing was a huge risk and a step of faith for me, kind of coming from where I have been and um, my own self-doubt and fears, speaking in public, uh, self-worth. Mm-hmm. Um, take a step of faith. If we'll be faithful to do the little we can do, God will be faithful to do the big we could never do. And... Um, I just think that's something that's really been on my heart is taking steps of faith. And I feel like we've been kind of lied to in a sense when it comes to what faith is. Obviously, faith is belief in God. But I'm saying having faith in life, like, I don't think having faith means there's zero fear involved. Yeah. Every time I've taken a step of faith, I've been scared out of my mind when it comes to making a choice or a big decision in life. Right. And I think that is faith. It's it's overcoming that fear and it's stepping out into the unknown and doing something that might be dangerous, might be risky. Um, but you're doing it because you know God's with you and you're stepping out. And again, um, it doesn't mean there's going to be no fear involved. So I guess I would encourage everybody listening with that as, man, we are, I think, living in the end days, live life to the fullest, take risks, step out in faith and do what God's calling you to do. Um, and it's okay if it doesn't look like what we think is normal. That's really good. No, thank you. And uh, really, I think that was what boils down to is, is, is to take those steps of faith. You know, don't wait. You know, with no man has tomorrow promised, you know, and so why... I even was uh, first time youth pastor uh, preaching in the main service on Sunday last week. That was exciting, you know. But I didn't didn't talk all about uh, you know Nephilim, but <laughs> but um, you know I want to I like my job. But no, all that to say was <laughs> I I was encouraging everybody in general. Hey, um, you know we're here for a reason, you know, and and that reason will bring us joy uh, as we as we put our faith in God. But we also need to we need to release what God's given us. It's not just for us, it's to flow through us. And, you know, even as I see you, you know, uh, as you're going in your search and discovery and taking that risk of sharing, because I, I can understand, you know, being, being involved in ministry, you start making statements of stuff. That's not just the typical narrative. It can be polarizing. And, but as you're discovering these things and it's all pointing people to, to, to read their word more, to, 
to pursue Jesus more, to, to really not just read it like it was a story, uh, like, like, you know, one uh, red fish, blue fish, you know, but that it's actually something that took place. And how can I apply this to my life? And how can I understand this more and get a better perspective? And, and as you have been doing the uh, labor to study and release it, it's been such a blessing, as you can see to a lot of people. I mean, the following that has, has grown on social media, the, the in, interaction and engagement that you've been having is phenomenal and how it's pushing people to study the word is, is commendable, but you know, you could have just been like, you know, nerd out, do this stuff, study on <laughs> your own and have a random conversation with your couple of besties, you know, and they'll be like, right. Oh, there's Derek again, being weird, talking about Nephilim again. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but because you took a risk and shared what, what God was leading you to the, the impact is, is essential. And uh, for, 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 for what God has planted in you to re be released to others. It's like the fruit that we produce that, that Christ produced in us, isn't always for us. It's, it's usually for those around us and those that, those that, you know, come to partake of that fruit that God's been building in us, you know, it, it should be something that's desirable. And so, uh, plus it's also probably brought you into a whole lot of realms of, uh, individuals who otherwise may never have found their way into the door of a church, you know? And that's what I love about it too, is as I've studied more about this supernatural, we're looking at a world where new age is the, it, it, atheism doesn't almost exist. It's new, it's, it's a new age and everyone is ble believes in some form of mysticism or, or spirituality. Right. And so as we, as we are prepared to have those conversations, not shy away, realizing that they're hungry for a component of it, not a, uh, and, and though they're, going after the counterfeit at this moment and we need to point them to the real. And I'm hoping someday to have uh, Stephen Bancars come on and uh, he, he wrote a great book called with Josh Peck called the second coming of the new age. And he really it talks about all of these new age interests because he used to be in it a lot and addresses how to really interact with the individuals that are outside of the church and point them to the truth. And much like you are doing is pointing people to the truth. And I appreciate your work, man. And, you know, out here in Washington, maybe I'll have you come, you know, preach it up to my youth one time or something. That'd be real fun to, <laughs> you know, just, just shock them be like, Hey, so I got this guy that just got back from, you know, shaking hands with the mummy, you know, it'd be really cool to <laughs> have you come say, Hey, but, uh, all that to say, man, anything else that, that you'd like to share? Like, how can people find you and, and, uh, and, and follow you and, and, and stay with your journey. And do you have any trips coming up that, you know, uh, maybe you're starting to open up new opportunities or new courses or classes or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. You can follow me for sure. Um, the blog, that's kind of where it all started. Megalithicmarvels.com. Mostly feature articles there. And again, we got a really cool one coming up. Um, I've got some new writers joining the team now and I uh, got a new article coming up on um, the uh, I'm linking on the name, the, the skull found down there in Eastern Washington. What's oh, that yeah, Ken, Ken Oak, Oak Man. Man. Ken that's Oak. right. Ken Oak Man. You're not going to want to miss that. So uh, that's megalithicmarvels.com. But then, yeah, follow me on uh, Instagram. That's kind of where the party's at, Megalithic Marvels. Just search that. And um, love to have you join us. Post lots of um, uh, reels, you know, kind of short-form videos of travels from Egypt and Peru and stuff like that. And then um, – I think where I'm on all the other social medias as well. So yeah, you can also email me info at megalithicmarvels.com. Um, but so that's kind of what's going on. I've got some cool um, 
I'm making mostly, you know, just 60 second short, short form videos right now. So I got a couple of coons in the hopper and then, yeah, we got a megalithic Marvel's trips coming up. Um, registration just went live next year, May 17th through the 28th is our uh, megalithic Marvel's of Egypt tour. We're going to go back and I uh, see everything that I described in this uh, show and the highlight's going to be a two-hour private visit inside the Great Pyramid, mm-hmm. um, where you're going to get to see. I mean, it's crazy the access we have. We basically get to, uh, you know, just go anywhere we want inside that thing for two hours. And believe me, time flies because you're just mesmerized. Um, and so we're going with Mohammed Ibrahim. I think he's the number one tour guide in Egypt for reasons I stated earlier. But uh, again, there's so much to see. It's it's just it's a whirlwind. Wow. Um, so that's the, I'm also working on a trip next year. So we, I'm hoping to have two trips next year: one in May to Egypt, and then one in Peru around October of 23. And I'm I'm trying to get Brian Forrester to join me and uh, co-host that one. And that would be to see all the main sites in Cusco, and maybe if we can swing it. We'll even jump over into Bolivia and see uh, Puma Punku and Tiwanaku. Wow. So, yeah, follow Dang. me on anywhere to find updates. You'll see updates about that stuff. That's awesome, Derek. Uh, hey, my, my wife uh, say, all right, so are we going? What's the plan? <laughs> so <laughs> I'll have to go check, see how many spaces you got left. But, yeah, man, what a what a journey. And and, and if you ever got to that, that side of things, you know, lo- looking towards the online uh, education platform, man. I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there and growing, especially with the young, you know, 30 somethings parents that, that are, that have kids and they're getting exposed to this reality. They want to raise their kids in, you know, uh, grade school as well as junior high and high school in, in a, in a non fleeced, uh, narrative that you and I grew up in, but more of a actual, I'm in America and I can have an actual history of the world uh that's not just answers but that opens you up to asking questions it's not just about checking the boxes yes i got the correct date <laughs> get that out of here you know like how about you 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 develop the ability to critically think for yourself so yeah I'd, I'd be interested in that too someday man so thank you for all you've been doing anything else you, you got before uh before we sign off here no, that's it, man. Thanks so much for the invite. And um, it's, it's really cool to connect with guys like you, you know, just in this community through Blurry Creatures or Instagram, whatever. And uh, it's cool to kind of follow you now and see what God's doing up there. So keep it going, man. It's awesome. And the best is ahead. Hey, thank you so much, Derek. And uh, we will hopefully chat again some other time. And uh, other than that, God bless you. Thanks, man. All right. Talk later. Bye. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the show, Kevin's work, or you have questions or would like to be a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me directly on my Instagram at kevin.scott.johnson. I look forward to hearing from you. God bless.